Romans uh, chapter 6 on the screen says, uh, the wages of sin is death. Any sin that I commit, that you commit, in thought, in word, in deed, without repentance, especially, it leads to death, to spiritual death. King David of Israel has sinned greatly. If you haven't been here the last three Sundays, um, let me tell you what has happened. You may already be familiar with the story. But while his men were out on the battlefield, late one afternoon, uh, David was walking on his deck, and he saw a very beautiful woman bathing. He sends one of his servants to discover uh, who she is. And he learns that this woman is the wife of one of his faithful, mighty men. It's the wife of one of his marines, if you will. Anyway, he decided to send someone to go and get her, even with that knowledge. She comes to his palace, to his bedroom. They commit adultery. She's pregnant. David has a plan to cover up this pregnancy, and it fails. He tries another plan. It fails. He has his marine, his faithful marine officer, killed on the battlefield. Lust, adultery, abuse of power, cover-up, murder. But so far in our study, so far in our progress through 2 Samuel, uh, David has not repented. He has not come into the light. He is blinded. He is experiencing what I have described uh, through this uh, phrase from Daniel Kahneman, what you see is all there is. And what David sees is a beautiful woman, and he sees his reputation in jeopardy. And he has a very narrow focus. What you can see is all there is. What he sees is his reputation that he's trying to protect, and he sees a beautiful woman. He is living as though God doesn't exist. He's living as though the commandments don't exist. He's blind. One of the most important truths that we should see coming out of this section of 2 Samuel is the urgency to repent of our sins. For me to be, have a sense of urgency of repenting of my sin. For you to have a sense of urgency in repenting of your sin. Don't delay. The reader... If you sat down and read these chapters uh, together, the, the, these last chapter or two, you, you would be wanting and wanting and wanting David to come into the light. The reader wants to see him change, to be the man that he was for so many decades, living a life of integrity, a man who loves God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what the reader wants. 
and should drive us to think about ourselves. He hasn't come into the light yet, but there is this sense of urgency of, of, of telling the truth, of, of coming clean, of, of walking into the light. I want to introduce you briefly to another guy who um, wanted to help someone come into the light. He's on the, on the screen here. His name's uh, John Edgar Weideman. He was a former professor at the University of Wyoming and at Brown University. He grew up um, in a ghetto in Pittsburgh. And there's a picture of his brother here next to him. Two incredibly different lives. One eventually is a professor at an Ivy League school. The other one spends 44 years in prison. And they actually didn't become close until his younger brother was in prison. And he's living on the outside, and he would go and visit his brother, and this is where they engaged in conversation at the prison in Pennsylvania. And his younger brother was in a, it's amazing how commonly this happens, even though he was in prison, is in a romantic relationship with someone who's on the outside. There's not a lot of romance other than in the heart, but he's in this relationship. And Robbie, uh, the guy on the right who's actually out now, his sentence was commuted, he has deceived his girlfriend in, in telling her that he's going to be out soon. But in reality, he has a life sentence. And so when the older brother is visiting his younger brother in prison, he wants him to come into the light. He wants him to stop deceiving his girlfriend. He says, her name's Leslie, tell Leslie the truth right away. Don't let it slide a day longer. Don't stay in this tunnel vision place. Don't stay where you are. He goes on, things only get more complicated the longer you wait. Nothing gets better. Time passes. And you can get busy with something. You can distract yourself and pretend things will sort themselves out. But that's bull. All you ensure by putting off the moment when you tell the truth, the whole truth, is that things will get worse. The hurt you inflict deepens. The inner turmoil grows more disruptive, bitter. Waiting opens the possibility of losing control of allowing what, what you won't disclose to come to light in another fashion. And that's fatal. You lose once and for all the small consolation that a voluntary confession might have brought. You're a thief caught in the act. And nothing you say can change that. This is the older brother talking to the younger brother in prison. He goes on, the author, the professor, I let Robbie know, his, his younger brother, I'm speaking from experience, and that's why I'm preaching at him. I'm telling him to act in a way I didn't. 
I didn't confess. I got caught cheating. He's referring to cheating on his wife. So I'm a witness. I can authenticate the terrible cost of holding back the truth by describing the chaos of my life. He wants his younger brother to come into the light. The reader of 2 Samuel wants this man, after God's own heart, to come into the light. But he has abused his power. He has used his servants, his military, to do evil. Because all he can see is his reputation going down the tubes. And the other thing he can see is this beautiful woman that he wants. That's where we left off last week. And a lot of time has elapsed. We don't have any chronological details in the text here that are obvious, but they're here. As we come to chapter 12 and verse 1, I hope you have your Bibles open. We're about to go through this passage that was just read. A lot of time has passed since last week's passage. More than nine months. A pregnancy has gone and a baby has been born. A year, maybe two, has passed. David has not come into the light. So we come to verse 1. Chapter 12, 2 Samuel, verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, one female lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. This, this language, it's, this sentence that's about to come here is very common for our day, but this is uncommon in the ancient Near East, this, this kind of affection for livestock. This, this female ewe lamb, it shared his food. <laughs> it didn't eat alfalfa or, what do, you, what, do you, what do you feed sheep? I'm not a, what do you feed them? Everything. <laughs> Whatever that's cheap, right? This ate his food. It drank from his cup. Like he got his Yeti water bottle out and, 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 and shared the, the, the water with the lamb. He slept with the lamb in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. I think you get this, but let me just pause here and tell you what's going on. This is a parable. The rich man is David. The poor man is Uriah. The one female ewe lamb that he has is the one wife that Uriah had. The rich man with a large number of sheep and cattle refers to what was common in the ancient Near East for rich and powerful men that David had many wives. But there was one man who had one. This is a parable. A parable is a simple story that has a much more profound spiritual truth. 
The parable continues in verse 4. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Let me pause here for a moment, a little background, or let's start with our day. So if somebody's traveling to Reno on I-80, and they somehow found their way to my house and knocked on the door and expected filet mignon and a nice meal and a place to rest on their way to Reno, what might my response be? Or yours? Who are you? Did you see In-N-Out Burger? Did you see this? Did you see that? So that's our culture. But in ancient Near Eastern culture, it wasn't like that. So in ancient Near Eastern culture, when a traveler stops at your door, it's just as expected. You know, I saw some of you today, and I, I smiled and shook your hand or gave you a hug. That, that, that's what's expected when we see each other. So in the ancient Near East, when a traveler comes to your door, it's just expected that you're going to cook that guy a meal, that, that he's coming in to your home. So this traveler in the parable shows up. And the rich dude refrains from taking from all of his flocks, and he takes it from the poor dude. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. So this is the parable that Nathan tells David a year or two maybe after, some long period of time after, David's great sins. One commentator says this about the parable, these three things. The parable exemplifies injustice, abuse of power, and the belief that might is right. David is blind. And so the Lord sends Nathan to him, and he tells him this parable. And this parable is strategically designed to resonate with David. Now, David has experienced a life unlike probably anyone here. David has been very poor from a immodest family. That's probably true of a lot of us here, actually. But David then becomes the leader of the most important family and tribe of the world. He is the son of David, who points to the greater David, Jesus. He is the king of Israel. He is of the line and lineage of the Messiah. He has gone from being this poor person to being the most powerful person in the nation of Israel and perhaps the world, the known world at that time. That's quite a transition Look on the screen, 1 Samuel 18. David said, does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law? This is back when he was referring to Saul, when he was offered Saul's daughter, Michal, as his wife. This isn't a little thing. I'm not from a significant family. I don't have the resources. In that day, you had to give a lot of resources to marry up into a prominent family like this. Since I am a poor man and have no reputation... I'm saying all this to say that this parable David could relate to. It was strategically crafted 
by God through Nathan and given to David. We want the Bible to read our hearts. We don't want to just learn the facts of the Bible. And so we want to say out of verses 1 through 4, Lord, help me to have my eyes open to my sins. I don't think I'm overstating it to say every single person hearing my voice has sins in their life that they are blind to, including myself. This is how this text should read your heart and life. What sins am I blind to that he's gone a year or two and needs to hear this parable? What do I need? How's it going to get to me? Lord, help me to have my eyes open to my sins. That's verses 1 through 4. So let's look at David's response. Verse 5. David burned with anger against the man. So there's some holy deception going on here, right? So David doesn't understand this is a parable. It's a very holy, temporary deception. David burned with anger against the man, the rich man in the parable. The reader knows the parable David doesn't hear. And said to Nathan, as surely as Yahweh lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing. He had no pity. He had no mercy. He had no compassion. David rightly diagnoses the heart of the man in the parable. He has no mercy. He has no compassion. He's full of himself. He stole from this poor guy. Sickening. David responds as someone who was once poor and someone who is now incredibly rich. He responds, he knows the scripture. It's amazing how you and I, like David, can know the scripture and be blind to our own sins. What scripture does he know? Look at Exodus 22 on the screen. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for sheep. David knows Exodus 22.1. And he says he needs to repay four times over, but then David goes beyond that and says he needs to die. So I'm no attorney, but this is what attorneys call extenuating circumstances. Like you commit a certain crime, and here's the punishment for that crime, but when you do it in some aggravated or severe way, the king has the authority to up the consequence and the punishment. That's what is going on here. David's call for capital punishment reflects the inadequacy of the civil law in this particular case. The rich man deserved death for his callous act, but was protected by the law itself. David is furious as we look at verses 5 and 6. Lord, help me to hate my own sins 
more than the sins of others. David can clearly see the sins of the rich man in the parable. I want to suggest that you and I have the same disease. We can clearly see the sins of our children, of our spouses, of our grandchildren, of our neighbors, of our bosses. We can see them clearly. David can see clearly the rich man's sin, but he can't see his own. The reader is supposed to put him or herself in that place. I don't want to be like that. Lord, help me to hate my own sins more than the sins of others. David is furious, believing through holy deception. This parable is a reality. And this wouldn't be hard for David to believe because he functioned as as monarch and judge. And so he might actually execute someone for this kind of thing. This, This is something in the real world of ancient Israel that David would do. Verse 7. Then David, then Nathan said to David, You are the man. That is one, if not the key sentence in this unit, verses 1 through 15. You are the man. Here is truth, here is light. You are that man. One commentator writes this. He says, David, royal judge, is shown to be a rich oppressor through this parable. Another writes, attention is thus focused not on the simple case of theft. It's strange in our culture to speak about stealing a wife but this is what David did. But on the exploitation of the weak by one enjoying a superior position. Nathan has broken through the darkness and brought light into David's life through this parable. Lord, help me to shine light, perhaps, upon another believer's life or for it to be shown into my life. All of us need light. And part of the responsibility, believer to believer, is to shine light into other people's areas of darkness, especially people that we love and we are close to. So that begs the question, who knows your temptations and struggles and sins? Who knows you so well that they could see your blindness that you can't see? Man to man, woman to woman. If there is no answer inside of you right now to that question, you are probably blinder than you think. We need people who know and love God, who know us in a very deep way to shine light into our lives. 
This is what Nathan has done. After a lot of time has passed, Jonathan is gone. They're not spending time together anymore. It appears there was no one in the last nine months or year or two who could have done this to David, like perhaps many men or many women here today. So the Lord sent Nathan to David. Now God can do anything. He could do that today. But I think the importance of sharing our lives with one another, especially in a one-on-one context with other believers, is hugely important and where this happens most often. We need light into the darkness of our lives, each and every one of us including King David. All right, so we're through verse 7. This huge statement, you are the man. Nathan continues in the middle of verse 7. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? Notice the strong link there between disobeying God's word and a personal relationship with God. He despised the word of the Lord and he did what was evil in God's eyes, David did. You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him. With the sword of the Ammonites. You used other people to do it, but you did it, David. You're responsible. Verse 10. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. Sword there is a metaphor for violence. There are consequences to our sins. And God is saying that one of two consequences to David's sins, these great sins, one is violence is going to be in your family now. Verse 11, this is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. And he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret in the bedroom. But I will do this thing in broad daylight on the deck before all Israel. These are massive consequences, these two consequences. Violence and sexual immorality are going to come into David's family, his extended family. We could be really overwhelmed with this. A right response to this is, Lord, help me to allow sin's consequences. The reader here should see the significance of sin The consequences of sin, the wages of sin is death, spiritual death, sometimes physical death, always spiritual death. Understand the severity and reality of those consequences to help you, to help me, to make better choices. That's the way to respond to this text. Some of you may be going to a place in your mind, well, how how could God do that? Well, we get into you know, freedom and sovereignty here. These were free choices. Those of you who know the story, know about the immorality that's coming, that know about the violence that is coming, those were free choices that people made and God is using their free choices to judge David and his household. God wants us to make better choices. 
And he wants our eyes opened to the consequences, not so much of David's sin, but of your sin and of my sin. He wants our eyes open to that, to the consequences of it, so that we don't give in to those temptations to make better choices. Well, finally, we get to verse 13. This is where I wanted to get. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Finally, all of this, all of this pain, the reader knows of all the pain to come. Finally, David's blinders are off, and he comes into the light. He stops playing cover-up. He stops having himself at the center of his universe and his life with blinders on. Of course he sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against the other men in his army who died as a consequence of trying to kill Uriah. He has sinned against all kinds of people. But what David hasn't been able to see is that he has sinned against the covenant-keeping God who loves him. Yahweh, I've sinned against God. I have lived like an atheist. I have ignored God in my life and done what I wanted to do. So David finally repents. We can all go, "Ah." finally, 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 David repents. One commentator says this, in his total and immediate response of repentance, there is no hint in the narrative that there is anything less than an authentic, rightly intentioned confession. It is presented without any irony or suspicion. Lord, help me to speedily and unequivocally repent in my own life. This is how the Bible wants to read your heart and my heart. Not to go, I can't believe David did. That is not the way to read the Bible. The way to read the Bible is even though my sins and temptations are very likely different than David, maybe some of yours aren't, but maybe most of you, your sins and temptations are different. You have blinders. You have a reluctance to repent, to bring truth, to walk in the truth, to bring light to a situation. This is the lesson that the older brother visiting his younger brother in prison had learned. Don't wait. Don't wait to tell your girlfriend that you're not getting out. Probably ever at at that point where they're having the conversations Something incredible would have to happen, like a governor commuting your sentence, which actually happened to this guy, but there was no reason to believe that would happen back when they were having this conversation. Walk in the truth. Walk in the light. I have sinned against the Lord. David finally sins, finally repents, rather, after sinning so greatly. And he has these great consequences that are coming. And we want, the reader wants to speedily and quickly repent. That's what God has for us. Let's finish up uh, this passage. We're in the middle of verse 13. David has sinned um, against the Lord. Um, David says this to Nathan in verse 13. And then Nathan responds. The Lord has taken away your sin. There's the gospel. 
if you will, the Old Covenant gospel, as, as close of the gospel that we have in the Old Testament. The Lord has taken away your sin. Underline that, circle that. Our God is a God of mercy. Probably Old Testament, ancient Israelites reading this text would probably think the execution of David is coming. But our God is gracious, extending mercy and compassion. And so the Lord has taken away your sin. That's what he wants to do in my life, in your life. He wants to forgive you. He goes on, Nathan speaking, on behalf of God, you are not going to die even though that's what the law required here, Leviticus 20 on the screen, if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, this is under the old covenant in ancient Israel, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. That's quite a law hanging over you. And this law applies to kings. This law applies to everyone. But God in his grace and his mercy decides not to apply that law but to take away your sin and say you are not going to die. Verse 14, but because by doing this you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. The baby that Bathsheba has had is going to die. And then Nathan went home. I've arranged the outline, and this is the last point, as prayers. The final prayer is, Lord, help me to rejoice in Christ's forgiveness. It's common to think of ourselves as uniquely bad. I did this again. I can't believe I did that. Is God going to forgive me? Say yes. Yes. How about abuse of power, lust, murder, adultery, stealing a wife, bringing her to your home to be with all the other wives? Will God forgive that? Say yes. He forgave it. The Lord has taken away your sin. How did that happen? It happened because there would be a greater David that would come and would die on a cross. And salvation has always been by faith. And David's faith was in Yahweh, who was going to send a Messiah one day, who would pay the price for all sins, David, mine, and yours. And we are forgiven, whether you lived before Jesus or after Jesus, by faith in God. David was forgiven. You are forgiven. I am forgiven. That is good news. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we're thankful for the character of our God who wants to extend mercy and forgiveness. This only happens when we walk in the light, when we repent when we live as though you exist. We're thankful that David has come into the light. Lord, help us to walk in the light. Lord, I believe you can send a Nathan with a strategic parable to any one of us, but I have 
rarely, if ever, seen this happen. And so, you have given us responsibility to not give up fellowship, which doesn't mean just go to church on Sunday. It means sharing our lives with one another so that we can help each other to walk in the light. Help us to do that, God. And may we glorify you and rejoice in the forgiveness that is ours in Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.